My name is Carly, and I was working in an abortion clinic in Texas as a reproductive health assistant when Roe v. Wade was overturned. Um, and I guess I'll share a little bit about Friday, June 24th. So as a clinic, we had expected the decision to come on Monday. And in preparation for that decision, we um, had a fully packed schedule for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We were trying to see as many patients as we could before um, we knew we could no longer see people. And we typically start our days around 8 a.m. And so um, on the morning on Friday, we were fully in our workflow, seeing patients, um, starting their counseling and education. Um, and I was in an ed education room with a patient going over what to expect for the procedure and signing consents and doing education. Um, and my coworker knocked on the door and she opened the door and she had tears in her eyes and asked me to step out for a moment. Um, and when I stepped out of the room, I was met in the hallway by my other coworkers as well. Um, you know, everyone had tears in their eyes and someone said, um, we have to stop. And we had a clinic completely full of patients um, that we were about to provide their abortion care for them. Um, and we had to turn them away and tell them that we could no longer provide that care for them today. Um, and because we did have that full weekend schedule, we had to call patients and also inform the, them that we had to cancel their appointments so that we could no longer provide care for them. Um and it was absolutely devastating and heartbreaking. It felt like um, a complete crisis in the clinic. Um, and yeah, I guess the decision clearly has affected my work and my career um, by my position just no longer being able to exist. And it feels like a loss on so many levels um, for everyone with a uterus in this country, especially in those states that had um, trigger bans and um, a loss for my team that I was really close with of abortion care workers, for all of the patients we had scheduled. Um, so there's just a lot to grieve during this time. Um, and there's just a very complicated feeling of being an abortion care worker um, and having this really necessary and valuable skill that is so needed right now and just not being allowed to provide it, legally able to provide it. Um, it's a very complicated feeling. And um, I guess what I want people to know from the perspective of someone who's been doing this work is that a lot of people need abortions right now. Um, you know, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and people are always going to need abortions. And in just my city alone, we were seeing over 40 patients every single day that were pregnant and didn't want to be. So um, there's just a huge need for this care, and it's such a necessary, um, you know, health health care that should be provided to everyone everywhere. And there's been a lot of talk about what we can do um, and how we can fight this. And there's a lot of discussion about voting in the next election and advocating for systematic change. Um, and that's all really important, but there's such an urgency to this issue and um, people need to be spreading information on how to access abortions and um, people need to be investing in mutual aid efforts to fund abortion care for people and to help people travel and get out of their states where it's not legal to states where it is legal. Um, you know, people need to be driving people across the country and across state lines and housing people in, the, in more um, liberal states and watching people's children while they travel and just community care is just going to be really essential right now because um, the state has clearly failed to care for us and so um, we just have to take care of each other. Welcome to Access, a podcast about abortion. I'm your host, Garnet Henderson. Held, the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. It's been about two and a half weeks since the Supreme Court issued that ruling. 
The decision came down on Friday, July 24th, while many abortion clinics, like Carly's, were rushing to see as many patients as possible. They knew what the decision was going to say, because a draft was leaked about six weeks before it became official. So in the states likely to ban abortion, providers were racing against the clock. One Texas doctor told me that his clinic moved its first appointment time up to 7 a.m. after the leak so that each day they could see as many patients as possible before the Supreme Court started issuing opinions at 9 a.m. Central Time. Most of today's episode will be dedicated to stories from people who work in abortion care and people who've had abortions about how this ruling has affected them and the people they care for. But first, I've gotten a lot of questions from listeners about what's going on and what you can do to help. So I wanted to address some of those. First, I could dedicate an entire episode to the claim I read at the top of the show from Justice Samuel Alito's opinion, that eliminating a constitutional right to abortion simply returns the issue to voters. For now, I'll say just a few things. First of all, gerrymandering and voter suppression have created a reality in which most state legislative bodies do not reflect the political views of the people they represent. State abortion restrictions are a perfect example of this, because polling data tells us that most people, including people in red states, believe that abortion should be legal in at least some circumstances. And yet, states have systematically been chipping away at legal abortion for decades now. And 26 states are expected to ban abortion now that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe, despite that being an objectively unpopular thing to do. Second of all, the pre-Roe abortion bans being enforced in several states now were written long before most of us were even born. Some of them even date back to the 1800s. That's right, before women gained the right to vote. Finally, if you've been listening to this show for a while, I hope you've learned that abortion is not actually a political issue. It's a human rights issue that has been unfairly politicized. No one's bodily autonomy should be up for a vote. So what happens next? Well, as I mentioned, and as we discussed in detail back in episode 10, there are 26 states that are certain or likely to ban abortion within the next year or so. About half of those states have already taken action. Things have been changing every single day. So I'm recording this on Monday, July 11th, and it is possible that what I'm saying may already be out of date by the time you listen. But right now, abortion is banned in eight states. Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, Missouri, and South Dakota. Clinics have also stopped providing abortions in West Virginia, Wisconsin, and Arizona because of concerns about pre-Roe bans in those states. In Ohio, Tennessee, and South Carolina, abortion is banned at around six weeks. That's a total of 14 states where all or most abortions are now illegal. Things are really confusing right now, and unfortunately, that's probably not going to change anytime soon. While there's no longer a federal constitutional right to abortion, abortion bans can still be challenged in state courts. That means we're going to see legal battles that may continue on for months or even years at the state level. If you're trying to figure out whether or not clinics near you are open, the directories I Need an A and Abortion Finder are doing a great job of keeping their information up to date. For information about self-managed abortion with pills, which you can do anywhere, check out Plan C. I'll link to all these websites as well as all the other resources I mentioned today in the show notes. I've gotten a lot of questions about what organizations are the most effective to donate to or fundraise for. If you've been listening to the show for a while, then you know that independent abortion clinics, meaning those not affiliated with Planned Parenthood, provide three out of every five abortions in the United States. Not just that. Indie clinics are leaders in providing care in the most restrictive states and have been holding on there for years. Almost all of the clinics that provide abortions later in pregnancy are also Indies. You can support them via Keep Our Clinics, a project of the Abortion Care Network. 
There are also several indies that are fundraising either to move from banned states to legal states or raising money to keep their doors open in banned states so they can continue providing sexual and reproductive health care as the law allows. I'll link to some of those individual fundraisers as well. As always, if you want to help people get abortions right now, today, the most effective use of your money will be to donate to abortion funds. And yes, you can donate to the National Network of Abortion Funds, but it's even better to pick an individual fund and send your money directly there. Funds in banned states certainly need a lot of support right now, and it's also a really important time to get to know your local abortion fund. Subscribe to their newsletter. Follow them on social media. They are the people who know best what's going on with abortion access in your state. Even if you live in a legal state, there are going to be abortion access challenges as patients from out of state flood in. However, please do not use an abortion fund's hotline to contact them unless you are seeking funding for an abortion. Leave those lines open for the people who need them. And you may notice that some abortion funds have suspended services temporarily while they await legal clarity on what exactly they can and can't do. Be patient and keep following them. They'll be back. Relatedly, I've seen a lot of social media posts from people in safe haven or legal states offering their couches and their spare rooms to people who might need to travel for an abortion. And I understand that those of you who are doing this really mean well. But think for just a moment about what a huge security risk this is. First of all, posting in a public forum invites scrutiny that could put anyone who does contact you at risk. And second, anti-abortion groups have a long-standing strategy of using crisis pregnancy centers to intercept and delay abortion seekers and to gather personal information about them. They will absolutely do the same with these kinds of social media posts, and they could even use them to lure pregnant people in, maybe to prevent them from having an abortion or even to turn them into authorities if abortion becomes criminalized please do not help them. Instead, learn about the abortion support networks that already exist in your area because they already do and find out what they need. And again, if you reach out and you don't hear back right away, please be patient. Everyone whose work has anything to do with abortion is completely overwhelmed right now. Speaking of criminalization, another place to give is the Repro Legal Defense Fund. They help bail people out and fund their defenses if and when they're investigated, arrested, or prosecuted on charges related to self-managed abortion. This is the organization that bailed out Lizelle Herrera when she was arrested for allegedly self-managing an abortion in Texas back in April. That's enough from me for now. Let's get back to your stories about how the end of Roe has affected you. Hi, my name is Samira. I am a fellow in complex contraception and family planning, i.e. abortion care. The Dobbs decision fell on literally the last day of my four-year residency in obstetrics and gynecology, so that was rather a slap in the face. Obviously, the Dobbs decision and the fall of Roe v. Wade has an enormous impact on the work that I plan to do. In becoming a fellow in complex contraception and family planning, I essentially plan to dedicate my life to making sure that pregnant people and pregnancy-capable people continue to have access to safe abortion on demand. And um, I will be training in a state where it is very possible that within the next one to two years, that availability of care may may be gone um, as a result of state-based legislation that is now possible thanks to Roe v. Wade no longer being in effect. The state where I will be training is also in a position to be a haven state because it is surrounded by other states that have already put abortion bans on the books, so that is an enormous loss. It's a really sobering time to be an obstetrician-gynecologist in the U.S. and certainly to be on the cusp of starting my career as an abortion provider. Abortion is healthcare. Um, 
We provide it on a spectrum with all of the other kinds of care that pregnancy-capable people may need in their lifetime. And to see Roe v. Wade, which we were all counting on, um, go away is frankly really, really terrifying. Um, so really an interesting time and an interesting um, environment in which to be starting my career. My name is Paige. I had an abortion in 2017 while I was an undergrad. This decision has brought me to my knees. I have never known grief in such a personal and visceral way. Even with the six weeks notice, it has been incredibly hard to process. It's hard to pinpoint what exactly makes me the angriest, but I think Alito directing women and other folks who need abortion to simply vote is high up on the list. Gerrymandering has diluted the agency of communities across the country. It has taken away their power, their voice, and their ability to accurately vote representation into office. It doesn't matter that the majority of Americans support abortion access when states have their electoral process flipped on itself. I'm from North Carolina, and we have one, maybe two, competitive congressional districts. How is that democratic? And how does that seem like a viable path of response? It's not. (laughs) I'm so grateful for my abortion. It gave me a future I'm so happily pursuing, and I will do everything in my power to support those who need that access, regardless of Rose's status. I'm a registered nurse where we now have a cardiac activity ban, um, and it feels so rushed for patients. Um, I feel like this cardiac activity ban has actually created a really coercive environment that's really hard for us to um, tamp down because if someone doesn't have cardiac activity, then we're like, okay, great, come back tomorrow. We'll scan you again. We'll do your abortion. And often I can see in their faces that they're really not ready. Um, And they're trying to weigh, like, should I have this abortion even though I'm not ready or should I take more time to decide and then have to negotiate leaving the state, getting childcare, getting time off work, maybe losing my job, et cetera. Um, or should I just go ahead and have the abortion now just to be sure? Um, we're seeing more people who are unsure than ever before like astronomically more people who are unsure. And I don't really know how to navigate that as a care provider Um, because historically, if people aren't sure, we felt really confident to be like, this isn't an emergency. It's fine. Just think about it and you can come back. And now we really can't say that anymore. Um, And that's really taxing um, when I'm caring for people who aren't even sure yet that this is what they want. My team is going into work tomorrow, which is Sunday, um, to try and see some of the patients that did not have cardiac activity when we saw them on Friday. We were planning not to do procedures until Tuesday, but almost all of them will almost certainly have cardiac activity by Tuesday. So a group of us are going to go in um, on Sunday to try and see them. I think we probably need to almost switch to like seven days a week of service and people doing half days instead of full days because it seems so cruel to scan someone on a Friday and say you don't have cardiac activity, but um, scan them again on Monday before their abortion and they do. Hi, this is Jill from All Families Healthcare. Uh, I use she, her pronouns. So here at All Families in Whitefish, Montana, we saw patients that day as normal. Uh, What was really great was that the community reached out Um, People brought flowers, they brought baked goods, they brought checks, and we got a lot of emails from folks in the area asking how they could volunteer with us, if we needed any help. And yeah, it really meant a lot to us that we got so much support from the people around us. Um, We also got a lot of calls from people in Montana who were just confused about the state of their access to abortion and birth control. We got a lot of appointment requests for long-term contraception care like IUDs. And it was really important to us that our patients and just everyone knew that abortion is still legal in Montana. So we put out a statement on our social media that day, just making it very clear that abortion is still legal in Montana and that we are still providing abortion care to those who seek it. We have seen an influx in patients from surrounding states. Um, All of the states surrounding Montana have trigger laws. So for those who have already gone into effect, we've seen a lot of requests for medication abortion by mail from out-of-state patients who will then drive to a town within like the border of Montana 
to pick up their medication abortion. Um, because of this, we may become busier. We may have a lot more telehealth visits as we interact with patients who are coming to border towns for medication abortion from out of state. And medication abortion is really what we've seen an uptick in, especially medication abortion by mail. And it's really how we're trying to help our patients who are coming from banned states. Um, yeah, it's a really safe and effective form of abortion care. So abortion access in Montana is still legal, but depending on the results of the upcoming election in November, particularly the state of the Supreme Court seats in Montana and the Montana State Congress seats, we could be seeing a restriction in access to abortion in Montana. So as of now, we're still providing abortion care, but depending on the results of that election, that could change. Thankfully, it is still legal in Montana, and so we will be centering the needs of our pregnant patients for as long as we can. The next voice memo we're going to hear is from an abortion funder named Savannah in Kentucky. And I just wanted to cut in and give a little context because a lot has happened in Kentucky. So you'll hear Savannah mention a law called HB3. This was a law that went into effect in April after the Kentucky state legislature overrode a veto from the governor. It wasn't technically a total ban on abortion, but it introduced new requirements so impossible to follow that the state's only two clinics were forced to shut down. But about a week later, a judge blocked the law and abortion access was restored. You'll also hear Savannah mention NAF, or the National Abortion Federation. This is a professional organization for abortion providers that also provides funding for abortion care. Particularly in states that ban insurance coverage of abortion, clinics rely heavily on NAF funding to stay afloat. Despite having megadonors like Warren Buffett, NAF is extremely risk-averse and has stopped funding the procedures of people who live in many banned states, including Kentucky, even though clinics are open there. Hi, my name's Savannah. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. <laughs> um, big fan of the pod, and I am a hotline case manager with Kentucky Health Justice Network. I really wasn't planning on submitting anything because things have been very hectic, but KHJN has been public about um, NAF and the situation going on there, so I thought I would at least try just for some backgrounds, like Kentucky lost abortion access in mid-April um, and things were terrible. <laughs> um, so abortion clinics had to close down immediately because of an emergency clause attached to HB3. And we were the first state since 1973 to completely lose abortion access. And at that time, we, you know, diverted folks out of state, as you do. And we had a lot of support. Um, you know, we neighbor a lot of states, so folks could go to Indiana or Ohio or Illinois. And there was a lot of solidarity and a lot of, you know, local funds, um, graciously pledging money for our Kentucky callers. Um, it was kind of like a localized grease fire is like the best analogy I can think of where like, you know, you've got a pot of, pot of grease on the stove and it catches on fire and everybody throws some flour on it. And like, it's not great, <laughs> but it stops the fire. So... Then Roe vs. Wade was overturned, um, and I'm actually surprised at the position that Kentucky is at when it comes to policy. Um, Kentucky is a trigger ban state, so when the opinion was released, Kentucky clinics immediately shut down. And then a week later, we were granted a temporary restraining order on the enforcement of the trigger ban. So clinics open back up. But I think the most egregious thing has been NAF's very hands-off approach um, due to legal reasons. The National Abortion Federation is not funding to Kentucky clinics, and that has put a huge strain on the clinics and KHJN, and most importantly, Kentuckians seeking abortion. Um, 
I find this outrageous, <laughs> to say the least. I see a trend of national organizations um, kind of complying preemptively and assuming the less amount, the least amount of risk, whereas the organizations that I think actually live out their mission are trying their best and assuming larger risks because they truly want to champion reproductive justice in their communities. So I'm very disappointed by that. Um, it is a lot of emotional toll to suggest to callers that they get their abortion out of state because NAF will actually fund them than them getting an abortion in their own community. I don't know if this is like every state, but at least in Kentucky, um, the state prohibits private insurance to be used for an abortion unless it's life-threatening. And then, of course, the Hyde Amendment uh, prohibits Medicaid or any kind of public insurance option. So folks are paying at least $750 and up to $2,000 for an abortion in Kentucky. All out of pocket. Um, and... Kentucky Health Justice Network is a small local abortion fund operating off of small dollar donations um, in a red state. <laughs> so we can only pledge so much to keep the fund going. Um, so for National Abortion Federation to back out, even though there there is... From my understanding, no reason to do so. Abortion is legal in Kentucky. Um, really just shows their investment in reproductive justice. It is really hard to think of a reason why this is justified. Um, and I really wish that they could get on the phone with some of my cases where people are pleading with me to find some other money out of the sky because they don't want to or can't continue their pregnancy. So while abortion is legal in Kentucky, it is even less accessible than it was before the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Thanks to NAF. Compounding on the NAF situation is that our neighboring states are shifting rapidly as well. So when HB3 passed in Kentucky, again, you were throwing the flower on the grease fire and, and it was one localized fire. Now the whole house is on fire. Um, so it's not a good option for people to go to Ohio right now because there's a six week ban. It's not a good option for people to go to Tennessee because of a six week ban. Um, really our only options right now are Indiana, Illinois and Virginia and Indiana is about to convene for a special session. So I feel like there's so much uncertainty. It makes me nauseous and it's very hard to explain to people who you know, no way less than I do about the landscape of abortion, um, specifically in our region. Because I don't think people understand that most people seeking abortion are not activists or advocates or, you know, it, super pro-choice. They're just people going to their doctors and they're asking me, a ton of questions on like why this is happening and I don't have a concrete answer. Um, so there, it, it's very emotionally tolling and I think every day there's something I'm mad about. <laughs> it's like one day it's about the camping post and then another day it's about NAF and I'm not even mad at, you know, the GOP or Republicans or anti-abortion people because at least they're very solid <laughs> in their methodology as, as hypocritical as it is. 
it's the folks on like quote unquote our side um that have been truly pissing me off um the lack of investment from progressive organizations and candidates and politicians and representatives until just now and then asking so much work out of folks that do work in repro to catch them up on what's going on and for me i'm just like y'all should have been here a long time ago and it's especially weird in annoying and infuriating in Kentucky when we've already been through this. We lost abortion access. And and even before we lost abortion access, we've had a ton of legal fights for years. And now everyone cares. I just have a lot of resentment about that and in many things. Hey, it's the wheel of the Tampa Bay Abortion Fund. I just wanted to share a couple of thoughts about the end of Roe and uh, where Tampa Bay Abortion Fund is uh, in this moment. Um, we have seen a lot of rage donations come in, and we are so, so, so grateful for these donations um, that help us sustain our really crucial work. Um, but we know that generally with these abortion ban rage donations or rage donations related to the Supreme Court that they tend to dry up a couple of weeks later. Um, so the best thing that anyone can do to support their local abortion fund is set up a recurring donation. Um, we've also seen an outpouring of community support. People are hosting spin classes, donating proceeds from haircuts, yoga classes, having bake sales, doing concerts, and donating the proceeds to Tampa Bay Abortion Fund which is just incredible to see that community support. We've never really seen um, community support like that up until this moment. Uh, and lastly, the back and forth with the legal system in Florida with the 15-week ban has been confusing and intended to be so. People look to us for news and want to celebrate when the ban was enjoined, um, but we knew that it was going to be appealed and so clinics on the ground uh, weren't scheduling appointments past 15 weeks because they knew as well. Um, so the, they're not optimistic. The law will be blocked. So we look to the future uh, in a place where Florida has a 15-week abortion ban. How, um, how has the end of Roe affected me? I think I'm in shock still. I had an abortion last summer, almost a year ago exactly, and I come from a family that was very anti-abortion, and I think because of that, even though I've always been pro-choice and thought abortion was a necessary medical procedure, I there I have a lot of shame around my abortion. And I've been very slowly working through that and reminding myself that the decision that I made is the right one and it was the right one for me and my partner. Um, but that doesn't change what I grew up with. And the Supreme Court's decision... Um, kind of confirmed the other side of the argument. They confirmed my mom's side of the argument publicly, and it was my government telling me that my decision was wrong, and I am not valuable because I am a human. I'm valuable because of my ability to produce children. And that's just heartbreaking and <laughs> I I mean I I'm in shock. I went to the protest the day of the the day that the court released its ruling and I was happy to be there and I thought it was necessary but I also felt like 
it wasn't anywhere close to enough and it didn't feel like it was doing anything. It felt ineffective and just a way for people to vent their frustration without really creating any real change. But I don't know how to create that change other than voting, which I already do. And that's clearly not enough. In all honesty, the fall of Roe has been utterly devastating in so many ways. Not only processing like the loss of personal bodily autonomy, especially somebody who's wanting to start a family, knowing that that <laughs> literally will risk my life at this point. Um, but also seeing the trauma that it's causing to all of our patients and all of our clients and our staff. Um, frontline repro workers are carrying so much of their own emotion on top of the trauma that they're helping folks navigate and the way that we are being utterly abandoned by our government. And in many cases, the institutions um, that claim to care the most about this stuff. And it's, it's just exhausting and terrifying and heartbreaking. And on top of all of that, being somebody who's disabled and seeing my disabled friends lose access to their medication, knowing I could lose access to my medication. Um, it's really fucking bleak, honestly, and terrifying. And there are so many people that think that they're trying to help and are making it worse. And it is... absolutely fucking heartbreaking and devastating to see folks claim to want to help and then so quickly refuse that help when they're asked to do it in a way that's not harmful. It's just, it's really defeating. It's just been really hard and nothing works. Everything breaks and that makes it even harder. I don't know how we're going to do this. And I'm really terrified, honestly, that we're not all going to make it. I know we're not all going to make it. I know we're going to lose patients and clients and we're going to lose workers. There are people who are going to be absolutely ended by this. And it terrifies me. Absolutely fucking terrifies me. Hello. My name is Hans Dismer. I use they, them pronouns. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and education and research coordinator with Hope Clinic in Granite City, Illinois. Hope Clinic is located 10 minutes from downtown St. Louis and 25 minutes from St. Louis International Airport. Myself, I'm a Missouri resident. And for years, most Missourians have been getting care out of state because of hostile laws and inavailability of care based because of those hostile laws within the state. As a lifelong Missouri resident who sees my neighbors, my friends, and my loved ones access care out of state and provides care out of state, I am absolutely devastated. Um, and I'm also fearful. On Friday, the day the Supreme Court ruling was released overturning Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood, I worked phones almost the entire day, which is not my normal role. I did this because we were seeing almost a six times increase in the amount of calls we were receiving and multiple staff members who don't normally work phones were taking calls. We were speaking to many patients who had their appointments canceled minutes earlier in other states. Most of the people I talked to were from Tennessee and Arkansas, but I talked to people from Louisiana and Texas and Kentucky. I didn't talk to anybody local that day. Our clinic is used to having people travel across state lines to provide care. The majority of patients we see don't come from Illinois. 
So we've been preparing for this crisis for a very long time. One of the most heartbreaking things that was asked on many of those phone calls that I was taking on Friday was, you guys aren't going to close before my appointment time, are you? You do see people out of state, right? People were scared. People were confused. And people need access to the care that they deserve in a timely manner, free from judgment, free from stigma, with compassion, dignity, and respect. We have been seeing in preparation, you know, for this decision, especially since the leak of the draft opinion, an increase in calls to our our clinic for post-abortion counseling or to talk to somebody about feelings that have come up for folks who have had abortions in the past, sometimes 10 years ago, sometimes 20 who are now experiencing an emotional crisis because the care that they benefited from is in jeopardy and they don't know if their daughters or if their friends or if their family members have the same access that they did. I work with a provider who treated people for things like sepsis following unsafe abortions. He's been at our clinic since the 70s and I can't even imagine what it's like to live through that and to watch young pregnant people die because of unsafe abortion care. To have dedicated your life to making it safe and then to see everything go back. Fortunately, we live in, we live, (laughs) I don't live in Illinois, um, but fortunately we provide care in Illinois where abortion access is protected and we're expanding access. We're hiring more staff. We're expanding clinic hours. We're working to expand gestational age. All of these things are vital to the provision of abortion care. We know that clinics in our region, and there's only two of us right now, are preparing for an even more massive influx than we've already seen. Our clinic used to be able to get people in within a week of calling, usually within a couple days. Now we have medication abortions booked out for three weeks and we're rapidly working to make that more accessible so people don't have to wait that long and potentially not be able to get a medication abortion if that's their preference. We're in a little bit of a unique situation being right across the border from a hostile state that's been hostile for decades. I left Catholicism because of the harm that it caused me as a sexual assault survivor, as a queer and trans person, um, and as a person assigned female at birth and socialized as a girl. To have the state now able to enforce that religion on all of its all of the constituents within the state is abhorrent. It's immoral. It's unethical. It's disgusting, and it's a violation of human rights. I may move to Illinois soon, as Missouri threatens to impose new laws that. We would have all said, oh, that won't happen. They'll be in- that would be so unconstitutional, even without Roe, prior to this decision, that they don't value our rights to our bodies. It's about authoritarian control. It's about fascism. It's about white supremacy and Christian nationalism. It's about sexism and misogyny. These, these bans, these attacks on trans care and abortion care and voting rights and marriage equality. All of these things are about authoritarianism and we have a moral obligation to oppose it. And as an abortion provider, that is a moral obligation that I take to heart. I may move to Illinois if I have to. I'm a lifelong Missouri resident. But... Even if I do, my heart is with all of the people in Missouri and all of the people around the country who deserve better than their so-called government is giving them. 
Hey there, this is Queen City Feminist. I just got back from doing an action in front of the Supreme Court on the 4th of July with Shout Your Abortion and other badass repro activists. And I just want to make it clear that we are far better off post-Roe than people were pre-Roe. We have abortion pills. Abortion pills are accessible in all 50 states. We laugh in the face of this illegitimate court, and we will continue sharing abortion pill information. We will continue having safe abortions with or without the permission of our government because our bodies are our own. We deserve to keep our bodily autonomy, and we will never stop having abortions. Thank you so much. My name is Kaylee. I am a clinic escort. I'm the daughter of someone who had an abortion, and I'm currently a breast cancer patient. And all of these are part of my abortion story, though I've never had an abortion myself, and why I'm so enraged over Dobbs and the end of Roe. As a clinic escort, I see all the time that every abortion is valid and abortion is normal. And in many cases, abortion is wonderful. As the daughter of someone who had an abortion, I know that I exist in large part because she was able to access that abortion. As a white, middle-class, upwardly mobile woman, she was it was pre-Roe, um, but she was able to find what I call a relatively safe abortion, meaning there were still some issues, but it was a survivable abortion. And as a breast cancer patient, I would have to get an abortion if I were to get pregnant for a few reasons. Hormonally, it would not be good for me in terms of the treatment I'm undergoing. It would not be viable to follow through with a pregnancy. Also, I don't want to be pregnant and I don't want to be a mother. And so even if this had happened, if I had become pregnant in February before I knew what was going on with my body, I would have opted for an abortion then as well. And that is just as valid as why I would need one today. Hey, Garnet. Um, this is Hannah in Maine. I'm a clinic worker. I'm a doula. Um, I'm a mother. I've had a medication abortion and an in-clinic abortion. And um, Friday, June 24th, was one of the worst days of my life. I was seeing patients at the clinic Um And then the decision came down and we didn't really have time to process it. We had so many patients who needed abortions, needed birth control, needed ultrasounds, um, needed trans care. And we just kept working through it. Um, And some of us would duck into our little birth control supply closet and cry for a few minutes and then go back to work. Some of us would hug each other in the hallways outside our exam rooms and cry together for just a minute and then go back to work. (laughs) Some of us would step outside and call our partners, call our friends, have a good cry and then go back to work and You know, it's such a privilege that we can keep providing abortion care in the state where I am. Um, And obviously, I hope that we just get as many people their abortions as we possibly can. Um, And I'm definitely willing to put aside a lot of other things in my life in pursuit of that goal right now. Um, But also, you know, it's things are pretty unsustainable right now. So, um, you know, we're all just like really working nonstop, incredibly long days, emotionally intense, physically intense, mentally intense days, giving what tiny little money we have to abortion funds and to our friends who need to fly to other States and, um, you know, who need childcare and hotel rooms and, money for their abortions and we're all just, um, yeah, giving everything we have and, um, not that doesn't leave a lot of space for our grief. And so right now I think the grief and 
even just absorbing what's happening is taking a backseat to just the nonstop work and how do we get this next person their abortion? How do we get this next person their abortion? Um, but people are having those abortions that they need and that is a beautiful gift. And yeah, we keep going. We keep going. I'm just so full of love to and for every person who's going to have an abortion today and every person who's going to help provide that abortion um, and every person who's going to wake up and for the first time, you know, give money to an abortion fund or give someone a ride to the airport or plug themselves into the work. Um, so yeah, I love everybody involved. Hey, my name is Brianna and I received an abortion the day before Roe v. Wade was overturned. I live in Missouri, but had to travel to Illinois for it because everywhere in Kansas and Missouri was booked up because of people traveling from out of state in order to get an abortion due to laws that were already being created in other places. And there's only one clinic in Missouri anyway. It was practically impossible to get one before Roe was overturned. So we traveled to Illinois two weeks after we found out we were pregnant. We found out we were pregnant at eight weeks, which um, is obviously very early. And I'm really thankful that we were able to figure out that we were pregnant that early. And I just think it's important, though, to know, like, I didn't develop any symptoms until that eight-week period. And so any law that tries to limit it to six weeks is obviously outrageous and obviously very difficult to know if you're pregnant by that point. When we got the abortion, we were at Planned Parenthood over the state line near St. Louis in Illinois, and it was such a joyful experience. Everyone was so supportive. The nurses and the physicians were just incredible people to work with, and it felt like, honestly, such a special place where they honor people's bodies and uh, people's autonomy and their emotions. And aside from logistics being stressful, it was such truly like such a joyful experience of knowing that I was getting to choose something for myself and for my freedom and my pleasure and that I could go on having the adventures and the sex life I wanted and the work life I wanted and the home life I wanted and that was really empowering to know that I had that choice. The next day Roe was overturned. I woke up to the news of it still really feeling such peace knowing that I was able to get an abortion and the whiplash that that gave me, man, it just broke my heart. And it honestly induced a lot of fear into me because, you know, I had an IUD and I still got pregnant. And it's not that it's super common, but those things happen. You can do, quote unquote, everything right. And that can still happen. And it made me so much more fearful of what could happen in the future I live in the Midwest. It's already kind of a scary place to be when it comes to bodily choices and autonomy. And to be honest, it just made me mad. I've felt very mad. I've also felt really empowered because Roe never protected us the way that it should have protected us. And Congress has never protected us the way that that we can protect us um, or that they should have protected us, I should say. And... I don't know. I feel this mix of anger and fear and especially fear for other people who already had a hard time attaining abortions because of a lack of support and a lack of resources. But I also do just feel very emboldened and very empowered by the people that are around me. And I don't know, just by our collective power and collective anger, but it doesn't change the fact that it feels very scary. And especially here in the middle of America, it feels very scary and it feels very fraught. And there's such a mix of extreme hope and extreme hopelessness. Um, and I'm just trying very hard to hold on to the hope. And I'm also just thinking about how privileged and lucky I am that I was able to receive the care that I wanted and that I needed. And I also want to say one last thing. I, I think it's really important that we do amplify these stories and continue to amplify them. There's so much silence surrounding abortions. And even me talking about abortion with certain people in my life has produced a lot of silence from them. Like they don't know how to respond. They don't know why I seem happy. It, like I think a lot of people think it should be surrounded by sadness and regret. And I just, I think it's really important, like truly so, so important to really amplify the fact that 
it can be surrounded by happiness and peace and joy and excitement and pride. I'm very proud of the choice that I made. And I think that those stories, those stories need the attention just as much as any health consequence needs attention. I think there's such a huge spectrum of abortion stories. And I think the silence surrounding them is what has led to this moment. And so I think moving forward, if we can just scream it out loud, then um, I don't know. I hope we get somewhere better. I know we will get somewhere better, but I, I hope it's soon. This next story comes from someone whose abortion, which cost $3,000, was funded by the Reproductive Freedom Fund of New Hampshire. We talked with Josie Pinto, that fund's executive director, in our bonus episode about the Women's March. I saw it due June 21st, 2022. And at nine weeks, my husband and I went to the ER um, because I was bleeding. And it was a hemorrhage. Upon finding the baby on an ultrasound, the fetus, they discovered that um, the fetus had a, a thick neck and they referred us to genetic testing. So genetic testing determined that everything was healthy, which, you know, we breathed a sigh of relief, even though we decided we would love the child no matter what. Um, and so we went back in two weeks and the hemorrhage had cleared, but the hygroma has now formed behind the head, which is called a fetal cystic hygroma. It's fluid building up behind the back of the neck, which could resolve on its own or it could be worse. So we went back two weeks later and it was much bigger. So they referred us to um, a specialist in one of the bigger cities. So we went there three weeks later, and I was 16 weeks at the time, and they determined that uh, she showed signs of fetal high drops and had the, the hygroma was three times the size of her head. So they told us that we could do an amniocentesis either that day or in a couple of weeks when, I, when we come back for a cardiac ultrasound once she was a little bigger. Um, we determined it was a female through the genetic testing, but, um, we'd asked if we found out what the cause was, would it make a difference or would the baby make it full term? And they replied, no, the swelling was so bad. It's fatal. And I, you could see it on the ultrasound. You'd, I work in healthcare, but I think anyone would agree that even without a genetic diagnosis, um, you know that the baby wasn't going to make it. And so we called back a few days later to cancel the appointment for the cardiac ultrasound and schedule an abortion, which was their alternative they told us about at the last, that last appointment. Um, and to my surprise, only one place in the entire state of New Hampshire would take me after 15 weeks and six days. And when I asked why, they said it was due to political um, and religious beliefs in the neighboring hospitals. And so I booked my appointment in Massachusetts, thinking that would be the safer bet. The day before my abortion, I was sick at home. I'd been sick my entire pregnancy. And I put on Facebook that I was upset that I had to leave my hometown to go do this procedure. Um, it was a much needed abortion and I had no shame, but I was disgusted at the way I was treated uh, because of it. And everyone on Facebook was very supportive and even linked me up with somebody named Josie Pinto. Now, Josie, I didn't even know how to say her organization's name because I was so distraught, um, Josie pointed me in the right direction to meet her at the state house the following day. And she would guide me as to let voicing my opinion at the state house um, as they voted on a amendment to their abortion ban for fetal fatal anomalies, which is what I had. And so 
I wrote up my speech that night. I went there the next day and I listened for hours as the opposition called me or, or called people like me seeking abortions, baby killers and um, go, condemning us to hell and just saying because they had abortions that they didn't like that no one should have one. Um, and I sat there for hours because I was deep on the list. Since then, I have spoken at rallies multiple times. They did pass the fetal fatal anomaly amendment and um, took away a ultrasound mandate, which then allowed uh, Plan C or the abortion pill to be mailed to uh, women in New Hampshire again. So I continued at rallies. I have talked to other moms that were inspired by me. We've been in multiple news articles, and I can't really stop here. I was told when I went into my abortion the next day um, that it could have been apparent. People were standing in eight-degree weather uh, on the sidewalk because they weren't allowed to harass us up to the door, thankfully. But um, you have to use a code word to go in, and you're padded down. They put tape over your cell phone, and then at the end of... The f- each procedure, because mine was a two-day procedure, they lead you out the back door so the harassers don't see you. In between those appointments, I had to get a hotel room that was $300 in the heart of Boston with my husband, and we had to nurse me. I bled out a lot, but you know they instruct you that if you bleed more than a certain amount, then you're partner or a friend or whoever's helping you or yourself you need to find a way you call 911 and get to an emergency room thankfully I didn't have to get to that point but it terrified me and enraged me that I know there are people seeking abortions that don't have that help and don't have that privilege to get there and even my experience was awful so it's fueled me and I can't stop. It just shows that the power of one voice leads to another and another and another and hold your legislators accountable. I don't care who you voted for. Just make sure you're smart this time. And if that doesn't work, meet me in the streets because enough is enough. I lead an abortion access organization in a red state that is extremely abortion hostile, and I am fearful of what the state legislature might try to do next to try to specifically target organizations like mine that are helping people access abortion care out of state. Um, I'm exhausted. The last few weeks have been bananas. Uh, but I'm also very invigorated by the support that we've received, the outreach from folks, the, um, the volunteer offers, the donations. It feels like people all around the country really are responding and, and trying to figure out what they can do, uh, which gives me hope in a sense. Um, and I really hope that people stay engaged for the long haul. My name is Anna. As someone who works in Repro, I've been bracing myself for the overturn of Roe and how devastating that will be for our communities and our movement. But as a survivor of sexual violence, and as a formerly undocumented person who could still be deported if I break the law, and as a newly pregnant person, everything is hitting even harder. It's incredibly triggering to lose my bodily autonomy and to know that the government is trying to control my body regardless of what I want. As a newly pregnant person, even with a deeply wanted pregnancy, I feel terrified that I will die from a miscarriage my body can't pass on its own or from any other complications that can come from pregnancy and birth when I can't trust that my well-being is a priority to the healthcare system. I've already dealt with the panic of what I thought was an ectopic pregnancy, and I was afraid of having an inviolable pregnancy. 
I was afraid of not getting the care that I needed, and I was afraid that I'd have to travel out of state for care. Thankfully, my pregnancy was not ectopic, but the experience reminded me how inaccessible the healthcare system is. And the weird comments I got from two of the ER nurses also reminded me that healthcare providers can be a source of surveillance and punishment as much as they can be sources of care and compassion. As someone who was undocumented for 27 years, I've always known that to be true. And as an undocumented person, I was made to feel small, powerless, and afraid of breaking the law. Now, as an abortion care worker, in a state where politicians keep trying to criminalize my work, they want us to all feel that way. I wish I could boldly say that I will aid and abet abortion no matter what. But as somebody who is still in the process of adjusting my status, I know I can't because the consequences of doing that would be too high. I hate that this government is so blatantly robbing me of my bodily autonomy, of basic health care, of a sense of safety. It's not the first time I felt despised by and controlled by this government. But this post-Roe reality feels so acutely crushing right now. Thanks to everyone who shared a voice memo for today's episode. I so appreciate you trusting me with your stories. And as always, if you have a story to tell about abortion, I want to hear it. You can always send me a voice memo or just an email. But please take care with your digital security, especially if you're contacting me from a state where abortion is or could soon be illegal. The email address that I give out in every episode and put in the show notes accesspodcast at protonmail.com is a secure email, but your message will only be fully encrypted from your end to mine if you also make a Proton Mail account, and it is free to do that. Another option is to email or DM me, and I can give you my number to communicate on Signal, which is an encrypted messaging app. You can learn more about digital security related to abortion in the Digital Defense Fund's Great Guide to Abortion Privacy, which I, of course, will link in the show notes. Please do what you need to do to keep yourself safe. Access is produced by me, Garnet Henderson. Our logo is by Kate Ryan, and our theme music is by Lily Sloan. Remember, Access is an independent production. You can support the show by donating or buying merch, or best of all, share the show with a friend. All those links are in the show notes. Please subscribe to Access wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AccessPod. Transcripts are forthcoming on our website, really, I'm almost caught up, a podcast about abortion.com. <laughs>